Will you pray with me? Abba Father, thank you for being faithful to each of us throughout the week, <clears throat> amidst all the comings and goings and ups and downs we experience. Thank you for being with us, even when life feels overwhelming or crazy. Thank you for never leaving us, even though our minds are feeble and fragile and we easily forget you. Jesus, our King, in this season we focus on the fact that you became Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate in the flesh. That is amazing to us. I don't think it is something I will ever understand. What an amazing God you are, that you would stoop to our human level and not begrudgingly, but lovingly, willingly, and joyfully. Father, we confess our sins to you. You know how often we forget about you in this season and how often our mindset becomes focused on what we can get next, how to make ourselves happy, and what we think we need. Jesus, through your spirit, will you show us more what it means to follow you, what sacrificial love is, and what your coming to earth really means for us and how we interact with others. You became incarnational to us. Help us show you incarnationally to others. Father, you amaze us in the way you love us, save us, care for us, and work so infinitely and intricately in our daily lives is astounding, and we are constantly blown away. Your goodness is beyond our imagination. Your creativity and personal care for us knows no bounds. We are constantly amazed, and yet we can't wait to know you more. Spirit, you are holy. Would you work in our hearts to be more like you? Would you help us set aside time to be with you and meditate on your goodness? Would you teach us more about you in the ways that you only you can? And Spirit, amidst all the divisive issues in today's world, would you please have mercy on us and unite us as only you can? Please may there not be a foothold for the devil among us. Will you tear down the divisive walls among us? Will you help us throw off all those things that want to weigh us down in our pursuit of following you? Soften our hearts, Father. May we as a church be clay in your hands. In your name we pray, amen. Amen, amen. Why don't you guys have a seat? Thank you, Jeanette. You can open up your Bibles to Mark 16, 1 through 8. It is good to be <clears throat> with you all good to see your masked faces, half your faces, but it's good nonetheless. There's an encouragement that happens in what we're doing. Recently, I was going through and cleaning some boxes of paperwork in my office, and I came across a gift that was given to me by my employees and coworkers 10 years ago. Uh, hard to believe it's been that long, when I was leaving my employer in Portland to move down to Salem and plant Mission Fellowship. As I read through the comments, I was struck by the tension of sadness that one season had ended while another was just beginning. It made me think, think through the fact that this is often the case with new beginnings, isn't it? Most often, for something to begin, something else has to end. And this may seem elementary, but because we are limited by our finite ability to remember only the past, experience only the present, we are always unaware and unsure of what will happen next. And this often leaves us with a sense of mourning what ended and some apprehension, even if hopeful apprehension, about what lies ahead. And our inability to know the future leaves us limited in understanding the fullness 
of the story that we find ourselves in. We're limited in understanding the story that we find ourselves in. Ten years ago, I knew little about the adventure that awaited me and my family as we came down here to plant this church. I could never have imagined this group of people sitting before me that I love so dearly. I could never have imagined the ups and downs of the last 10 years that have resulted in the glory of God. I could have never imagined the souls saved. I could never even imagine the building that we're in. I stood at a point in a place where I was mourning what was lost and somewhat apprehensively looking forward to the future, but I had no idea what was going to happen. I did not fully understand at that point in time that what I was experiencing was an ending that was, in fact, just the beginning. And for many of us, if we look back at our so-called endings in our lives, we often can recognize that in many cases, not all, because some endings are indeed just destructive, but in many cases of these endings, these were in fact the beginnings of something wonderful where we were able to see the grace of God in new ways. Unfortunately, I think we get often stuck in the same mentality when it comes to the gospel. We get stuck in our temporal limitations. We read most of the Bible as something that happened back then in the past, something that ended, and we have little interaction with it. Maybe it gives us some wisdom for now, but mostly it ended. And we look at some level of prophecy, and we see the future, and we say, well, that's going to happen one day, maybe after death, maybe after Jesus comes back. But again, we have little interaction with it because it's something that's out there and will happen one day. And so our present discipleship at this very moment, as we sit here in this church, or at any given moment in the present, it's often limited. It's outside of our interaction with the story of the gospel, and it's stunted because we do not think of the gospel as something working now, but rather something that worked then or will work in the future. But the gospel, while taking place in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ historically, yes, is still active and living today. It's living in every single interaction, every moment of our lives. It should be our very lifeblood as believers. Amen. You see, from the resurrection on, Jesus spoke with his witnesses to begin the process of calling all nations to himself, as he had promised throughout Scripture all the way back to Abram in Genesis 12. And they, Jesus' disciples, were to be the start of this massive movement, a movement of people who would, by their very faith, their allegiance and obedience to Christ, be the earthly representatives of his heavenly people. We are, in essence, his heavenly assembly taking place on earth. And he sits enthroned at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, interceding on our behalf and holding authority over us presently as our king. Just because Judgment Day will happen in the future does not mean that he is not our king today. And this, my beloved brothers and sisters, is the whole point of the gospel according to Mark. What I hope to present you with today as we uh, look at the verses in front of us and what many manuscripts would attest to as the end of the gospel, verse 8, is that Mark was very intentionally structuring his gospel account to leave you and I asking the question, who is Jesus and what do I do with that answer once I've answered it? And we've been used to looking at the first part of that question, who is Jesus? Everybody say it, who is Jesus? That's the primary question of Mark. But Mark purposefully seems to end the gospel in verse 8 in a way that forces the hearer or reader to ask the second question. Because here in these verses, we will see what I've entitled today in uh, this teaching, an ending that is in fact just the beginning. You can write that down if you're taking down notes. 
we see at this point in Mark an ending that is, in fact, just the beginning. And it is this truth that I believe will motivate us and give us great hope amidst the darkness in which we find ourselves. I find that when people lose their purpose, stressful times become even more stressful. People sent off to war, they actually go to it in a motivated fashion sometimes when they have a purpose, and that is to fight in the midst of the war. And friends, that's what you have been enlisted to do. Now quickly, before we look at our text, many of you might be looking at your Bibles. I even saw a few of you look down and kind of look up at me and look down again. You might be confused. You see verses 9 through 20 and you're asking, wait a minute, why are those there and why are you talking about verse 8 as if it's the end? Well, for an explanation on that topic and an exegesis of that ending, verses 9 through 20, I'm going to just ask you guys to wait until next week when Ryan Johnson, one of our other elders, is going to teach for the first time. He's going to go more in depth on that. So you can be praying for Ryan because it's always a little bit nerve-wracking to teach, even if you've been doing it for 10 years and it's his first time. So we need to be praying for him that the Lord prepares his heart and ours to hear from him. But he's going to teach on verses 9 through 20 next week. For our purposes this morning, I want you to simply look at the footnote or comment that many of you have after verse 8 in my copy of the ESV. It says this, it says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. And here's what that means in a nutshell. The most reliable, most quantifiable, and the earliest copies of Mark that we have end at verse 8. In other words, the majority of the evidence points to the idea that Mark intentionally ended his gospel account at verse 8. At later points in time, as Ryan will help us understand, and I'll talk about just a slight bit this morning, well-meaning scribes attempted to clean up or maybe even make more palatable the ending of the book. Now, to be clear, there is solid debate on whether verse 8 is the end. So I don't mean to come across today at all as if I know better than lots of scholars, because I don't. But what I'm saying is that I agree with the multitude of scholars, in fact, the majority of scholars that believe that it ended at verse 8. And that's very important to what we're talking about. But others might say that the original ending to Mark was somehow lost, or that there's a combination between verses 9 through 20 and another ending, a short ending that I'll share with you today. But I think that from a literary standpoint, we can see that the structure of Mark points to the fact that it was intentional that he ended with what we would call a cliffhanger. He ended in a way that almost trails off. So let's jump into the text and see what it has to tell us. Would you read with me in Mark 16, starting in verse 1? When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Dun, dun, dun. It's almost like you expect three dots to come after that, don't you? Wait, isn't there more? It leaves us on the edge of our seats asking the question, wait, what happened? Did anybody see Jesus? What's going on? Well, be at peace. It'll be okay. We all know what happened. 
But Mark, I think, ends it this way for a reason. But let's break it down one piece at a time, this idea of Mark ending in verse 8. The first thing you can write down is this. The followers of Jesus expected death to be his end. The followers of Jesus expected death to be his end. Now, again, this is a pretty elementary idea, isn't it? Right? You guys might think, Hans, you're going with some real low balls today, right? <laughs> well, this is true. The followers of Jesus expected death to be his end. And I'm not going to say more than what the text gives us. Death is the end for anyone living. Did you guys know that? Here's some fancy statistics for you. And in our age where statistics can say anything you want, I want to I tell you that this is one statistic I know that is completely true. 10 out of 10 people die. Do you know that you are 100% assured that you will die? Really encouraging, isn't it? Now, seriously, with full empathy and recognition of the heartache that so many have suffered, the loss of loved ones during the last eight months, myself included, my father died a few months ago, not from COVID, but from ongoing battle with cancer, I wonder if maybe we've forgotten this truth. Where previous generations encountered death as a necessary evil of life, our generation seems to have tricked itself into believing that death is something that we can avoid if we are careful enough. Now, brothers and sisters, while we should be wise about safety and protection of one another, each of us needs to recognize that there is a day appointed for our death. And only the sovereignty of God knows it. It may come as a shock when it happens far too early or in circumstances that we did not expect, but it will happen. And friends, if COVID isn't what gets you, something else will. No amount of protection or precaution will stop it. Now, certainly, this should not mean that we are to be foolish or callous poorly stewarding our lives by harming our bodies or putting ourselves in harm's way without good reason. This is, in fact, why we do these guidelines that are sometimes annoying and some of us even disagree with, but we do them because we know they provide a certain level of mitigation, certain level of safety. But we also are not going to keep death away by any other means than the blood of Christ that has purchased us eternal life. Yeah. And even then, the first death will still find us unless the Lord returns first. I love how the NIV phrases Hebrews 9, 27 through 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, this is a great hope because it's saying, hey, guys, just as assured as you are to die, 100%, just as assured as that, Jesus is coming back and you're going to see him again. Amen? But a piece of this is that, notice that there's no caveats or even justification. It's just, oh yeah, you guys already know that it's appointed for you to die, right? Well, I would say that many of us in the society right now have been tricked into the idea that, oh no, I can actually, if I do enough precautions, I can keep death at bay. No, you can't. Maybe you can keep COVID killing you at bay, but you can't keep death at bay. And what this should do, rather than making us fearful and scared, is it should drive us even further to Christ. And it should actually motivate us to realize, well, if 10 out of 10 people are going to die and stand before the judgment seat of Christ, then what should we be doing? 
And I would hope that we would say a resounding preaching the gospel. So that when death claims 10 out of 10 of us, there is a hope for eternal life. Amen? And so just as they had experienced here in Mark 16, time and time again as people in life, but even as the people of Israel, even with their great leader Moses, death is the end of life. They saw it with other people that claimed to be the Messiah. And Jesus, they thought, was no exception. So these faithful women who had been present at the crucifixion determined that they would go to the grave, that they would bring spices so they might anoint him. And the language here is very practical and, and, and very factual, giving the narrative, but underlying it, if we read it correctly, it's an, it shows an emotional pain and mourning that we can see as they come to the tomb. Imagine their heartache, their Messiah, their master, their rabbi at the very least, the one in whom they put their trust and who actually characterized the kingdom of heaven. He's gone. When your hope is in a person like that, and they succumb to death, can you even imagine the heartache? He'd been crucified and brutally murdered, his body taken to a point of physical torment that we can hardly comprehend, and the spiritual torment of being separated from the Father was even worse. And now the followers of Christ had scattered, fearful of what might happen to them, their minds and hearts reeling with the teachings of Jesus. Had he made a mistake? Had he said something wrong? Or was he, was he a liar? But none of this mattered to these three women as they planned on that early Sunday morning. The Sabbath from Friday evening to Saturday evening had not been one of rest for them as they most likely mourned and consoled one another and cared for each other gripped with guilt that maybe they could have done more, they could have been more faithful to him at the crucifixion. In Mark 14, they had experienced the anointing of Jesus for burial, perhaps even one of their own, Mary Magdalene, was the one that did it. And maybe, just maybe, the other women thought to themselves, we missed our chance. We should have anointed him while he was alive and given them the respect that he deserved. Perhaps now they could come and show him respect and honor that they've neglected before. And this is all supposition on my part, but something drove them on this morning. On this morning there, they went before the sun had even risen, walking while it was rising, while it was still dark, to leave their homes, to go to the tomb and anoint Jesus' body. They're so moved by mourning and emotion that they begin this journey with all the spices, realizing partway, hey, you know what? We don't even know if we can open the door. Because this massive, weighty, huge stone had been rolled in front of the door to lock the tomb. Could they even gain access to the body? Friends, this idea that death was the end of Jesus, it's still rampant today. This is what the world believes. Do you realize that the, one of the biggest things that separates you from the non-believing world is that they believe he is dead and gone and you do not? They believe that this man who once lived was merely a good teacher who had a good effect on the people to whom he ministered and that maybe at most he is an example that should be followed because if they didn't believe he died, friends, it would be ignorance and stupidity to not follow a man who resurrected from the grave. To not believe in Jesus means you don't believe in his resurrection. And so therefore, the world believes he is still dead. That's why they explain it away with errant ideas, as Pat, uh, Patrick took us through last week. They come up with ideas about the body being stolen or about him fainting, things that could not happen in the realm of logic. 
And the world looks at the Bible and specifically the gospel account, and they say, well, that was a nice story, but it ended. Too bad it ended. He was a good guy. And unfortunately, because of the errant theology that has filtered down over 2,000 years with regards to the Holy Spirit, with regards to the necessity of the church and the congregation of God's called out people, with regards to the living and active word, many Christians think and act as if it was the end. And there was this cosmic pause that started then and will last until Jesus returns. Jesus did his stuff back then, and now we are waiting for the gospel to have its eternal effect. It's as if we're in this limbo between the two. But friends, nothing could be further from the truth. You know why this is? Because of what they found when they showed up at the temple expecting to see a corpse. What they found is that they were shocked to find he had been raised to eternal life. They were shocked to find he had been raised to eternal life. Now you might be saying, wait a minute, Hans, there's Christmas trees on the stage. Why are you doing an Easter presentation? Well, guys, this is because Easter is not the only Sunday for the gospel. Every Sunday is. It's literally why we gather is to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim it to a non-believing world, whether they're paying attention or not. You know, it dawned on me, the world thinks that protesting is really important. Why? How many of you have watched any of the protests that have occurred around town? Some of you might have. I haven't really paid attention to any of them. Does that mean that their message doesn't still matter? No, their message matters because they gather together to proclaim a message. That's what the protection of the freedom to protest is all about. But for some reason in the church, we think that gathering together as the body of Christ to proclaim the gospel only matters if the non-believing world is paying attention. Do you get my logic? We gather to proclaim a message, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ dead and risen again. Now let's read what it says there in verse 4 through 7. Again, looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Friends, they expected death to have won. They expected Jesus' corpse to prove that his ministry and declaration of his place as the Son of Man and Son of God had come to an end. But instead, they saw that no one was there. No body was there. They saw instead only a messenger, one clearly portrayed by Mark as an angelic messenger, there to proclaim a message to them. Let's take that and break it down because, beloved brothers and sisters, this is the same message that we're to declare still today. First, they said, first he said, do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. You can write this down. This is how you preach the gospel, guys. Do not be alarmed. Why is this the first step of the gospel? Well, for these women, this was needed to break them out of the shock that things had gone differently than what was expected. But I think for you and for me, we need to recognize that this is the hook, the introduction for proclaiming the gospel that steadies the hearer. Friends, do not be alarmed at the suffering in this world or the sickness around us or the death that is on a rampage. Do not be alarmed at the fact that the political realm shows that individuals and nations rage 
constantly and jockey for power? And do not be alarmed that there seems to be no end to it all, but just a seemingly endless cycle of the dumpster fire that is the human condition. Do not be alarmed. Why? Because we know why this all exists. It's part of the gospel. Because the human condition is one of original sin. We who were created to be in deep and intimate relationship with the creator God, rather than allow him to be God and us to be his created beings, we rebelled against his role as ultimate authority and took that role for ourselves, deciding that we alone can be the ones that define good from evil, right and wrong. And this cosmic mutiny that occurred in Eon's past handed creation over to a kingdom not of love and light, but of darkness and destruction. And a ruler that the Bible calls the adversary of God began, began to reign through a tool called death. And now people groups organized into tribes and nations and down into individuals utilize this power of death for their own rule. And we do this individually and we do this as nations. Every time we argue against the authority of God in our lives, we do this. And the fact that this all exists proves the biblical view of original sin. But you know what? Don't be alarmed. Why? Because Jesus was crucified, but he has risen. You see, God condescended. He came down. That's a fancy way of saying he came down from his throne of authority in the abode of God and entered into his creation. First to understand what we had been subjected to, and to empathize with us, but then to show us that there is a different choice than the kingdom of darkness and destruction. He wanted to give us an understanding of the kingdom of God. And so for three years, he exemplified and taught on the characteristics of the Father and of the kingdom over which the Father reigns. And he showed that this kingdom that is so absent in the everyday human condition is one that we are invited into, one of peace and shalom, wholeness, restoration, love, order, and truth. Friends, this Christmas, as you look for hope in the midst of a lot of the trappings of Christmas, I want to clue you in onto one thing. As you're listening to the old Christmas hymns, listen for those pieces. Peace, wholeness, restoration, love, order, truth. The majesty of God as king. He exemplified it so much that the forces of human power finding their culmination in the religious leaders of Israel and in the state power of Rome, hated him for being the true son of man seated at the right hand of the ancient of days. And so they went to kill him and crucify him. They killed him by putting him up on a cross, but not without first mocking him as the king of the Jews and putting a crown of thorns on his head. And while they thought this would be his end, three days later, God raised him from the dead proving that the power of the tool of death, the tool of the kingdom of darkness, and the adversary of God had been defeated by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus' work on the cross. In that death, the punishment for all sin had been placed upon Christ and had been satisfied. And now, just as an earthly king who overthrows the reign of his enemy, Jesus has established a kingdom in which he powerfully reigns and into which he has brought those of us who accept his free and gracious gift of forgiveness. The time of the enemy is short and will not last. And every time we see the kingdom of darkness seeming to make inroads, seeming to grow as it is in 2020, we shouldn't be shocked. 
It's his last attempt, feeble attempt at trying to gain ground. And this was the very gospel proclaimed by Peter weeks later as he stood before Jerusalem. The same thing that I've just told you. Would you turn there with me to Acts chapter 2? Go to Acts chapter 2 and listen to the words of Peter as he proclaims one of the best gospel statements in the New Testament. Acts 2.22, we'll kind of skip through various pieces here. Acts 2.22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he begins to speak of the patriarch David, King David. And he says this in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to his day. You see, people die, but not Jesus. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Now pause there for a second. That's a massive theological statement there. Realize that it was not Jesus who raised himself. It was God the Father who raised up Jesus the Son. Why is this piece of of theology about the Trinity so important? It's this. Jesus in his 100% humanity and 100% deity did not raise himself. Who did? God the Father. Why is that important? Because God the Father never changes. And if he had the power to raise Jesus from the dead, he has the power to do the same for you and for me. That has not gone away. It has not ended. That's a massively important point. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, the proclamation of the gospel through various languages in Acts chapter 1 and 2. Verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then it goes on to say they were cut to the heart. What do we do? What do we do with this knowledge that we have? The very same question we're asking today in our teaching. Repent and be baptized. Be brought into the congregation of the called out ones of Christ. That's what baptism is. It's not something for us to do just as a religious tradition. It's literally moving into the kingdom of God. It's symbolically stating, I am among these people who are witnesses to my baptism. These are powerful statements. And friend, if this is true, what's preached in Mark, what's preached by Peter in Acts, what the apostles went to their, to their deathbeds for, if this is true, then it is the most important and greatest proclamation that has ever been communicated on earth. If this is true, then it changes everything. It provides an answer for the state we find the world in, and it provides a hope that cannot be taken away no matter what we face. So the question for us is, is it true? Is it true? And the reason I want to ask you that question and get you to pause for a second before you jump in automatically and say, well, of course it is, Hans. I'm a Christian. I prayed that prayer one day. The reason I want to ask you that is because if you believe it and if you have been saved by it, then it demands, 
not asks or requests. It demands nothing less than your life in proclaiming it to anyone that will listen. It demands it. And this is what the women heard last from the heavenly messenger. Go and tell others that you follow him. Do not be alarmed. Jesus was crucified, but he is risen. Now go and tell others that you follow him. The wording of the angel is very important. He tells them to go and tell the disciples that Jesus is going before them into Galilee to await them so that he will show them his resurrected and glorified state. But friends, this is more than just a statement of logistical planning. It's a bold declaration. He's saying Jesus is not in his tomb. He's not dead. He is alive. And just as he led you before when he was with you, he's with you now and he's still leading you. So follow him. This isn't over. It did not end. It's only the beginning. The only thing that ended was the reign of sin and death and hell. And this is the beginning of the kingdom of God burst forth into the earthly realm through the people purchased by the blood, empowered by the Spirit, equipped by the Word, and supported by one another. Beloved brothers and sisters, Jesus is not a remote and distant religious icon that hangs on a wall or that's part of some dusty storybook we once read. He's not a genie in a lamp that you can ask for when times get hard or that you sometimes find time to pray to when you think you need something. He's not your cosmic butler to make your life easier or give you your best life now. He is a reigning, majestic king over the kingdom that we proclaim to be part of. He's not dead, he is alive. And he is enthroned above his people at this very moment, interceding on our behalf, holding authority over our life and choices we make every day, uniting us by his steadfast love, ready to pronounce furious judgment upon any force that comes against his righteousness and justice. Friends, is this what you believe? When you say, I believe the gospel, is this what you believe? Is this what you believe, but even more importantly, is this what you proclaim in your actions and words and relationships, your marriages and your parenting? I wonder how many self-declared Christians will respond in the same manner as these first witnesses when Christ one day stands before us or we find ourselves face down before his throne. Will we respond in shock because we didn't expect it all to be so completely true? Or will we respond with ecstatic relief, thanksgiving and praise that this life is past and we have been welcomed into the healing arms of our loving Savior and King? Do not be alarmed. Jesus is not dead. He is risen. So go tell others that Jesus still leads you and that he awaits you if you are truly his. Friends, for 60 weeks, we have been exposed to this gospel account of Mark. We know the gospel. It has been the salve in which we have marinated for over a year. The question now becomes, what are we going to do with it? Brothers and sisters, you know the gospel. What are you going to do with it? As we come face to face with what some manuscript evidence says is the end of the account, we're left with this uncomfortable ending, if you turn back to Mark 16 with me. This uncomfortable ending, so uncomfortable that, as we will see next week, later scribes come along and attempt to lighten the abrupt ending. 
Ryan will show you next week the more accepted longer ending of Mark, verses 9 through 20. But a shorter ending that is found in some manuscript margins is this. I'll show it to you here. But they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all that they had been told. And after these things, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Not only does that not sound Markin, sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. And he doesn't have immediately at the beginning of it, <laughs> right? Not only does that not sound Markin, it's not, it's not doing what was accomplished in verses 1 through 8. It's like uncomfortable, oh, let's make it comfortable again. So I personally don't believe that this could be, and most scholars don't believe that this could be the ending. But you see how they tried to soften it a bit there and bring it to a happy ending, a happy conclusion. What we have here is not only an omission of the accounts of witnessing Jesus as risen Lord, but in addition, we have the supposed failure of the witnesses to go and proclaim anything. They just went home and were scared. So from manuscript evidence, we find that in the second century, there's an attempt to rework the account to what one commentator calls a more reassuring ending for Mark. It's not that the church is left overall in a cliffhanger, right? How many of you watched that movie on the Titanic back like 30 years ago? Were you at the end of it? Like, no, everybody knew what was going to happen with the crucifixion and death and raising of Jesus. And we see this even in scripture. For example, we see a creed that Paul repeated. Uh, many people believe that this is a creedal formula that he states here in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5. He says to the Corinthian church, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And 1 Corinthians was written 10 to 20 years prior to Mark. So verbally, orally, they already knew the story that Jesus had resurrected. That's why they're Christians. So Mark here, 10, 20 years later than 1 Corinthians, writes this with this ending, and it leaves you going, wait, what a, wait, what a minute? Huh? What happened? It's because of this that we're left asking the question, what was Mark's intent? And many scholars believe that we can see that intent by just looking at the structure of Mark throughout the book. He has been showing time and again this idea that Jesus is the incarnation of the Father, displaying the character of the kingdom. And it's answered the question, who is Jesus? That's been the main question we've been asking throughout. Who is Jesus? But then in addition to that, we can look back at the beginning of the book in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. You guys remember all the way back 60 weeks ago? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is most likely not making a redundant point here that the first verse of the gospel account is the beginning. I mean, how many of you, if you picked up a novel and you, the author said at the beginning, uh, this is the beginning of the book you're about to read. How many of you'd be like, oh, this is going to be good, literary. Yeah, let's, let's read this, man. This is going to be exciting. You'd be like, this guy is terrible. And so he's not just being redundant and saying, hey, just so you know, you're at the beginning of the account. What he's instead intimating is that he's about to give just the beginning. And therefore, it's continuing into the works of the apostles in the early church and on in today. And so it makes sense why he would end his gospel with a dot, dot, dot. And so with these pieces in mind, when we come to the last words of chapter 16, we see that it makes sense that Mark leaves it open and even shows a lack of obedient response on the part of the witnesses to almost convict us, the readers, that it's actually up to us to go and take the gospel message. 
C.E. Arnold, in his comments on Mark, puts it better than I could, so I just want to read you this short paragraph here. He says, Mark understands that the story cannot end with the report of the resurrection of Jesus. The readers also must go to Jesus, who goes on ahead of them. They must not only tell about his resurrection, but must tell the entire story from the beginning. Will they take the baton that is passed to them, run faithfully their part of the race, and pass the baton to others? Or will they retreat in fear and silence? Hearing the announcement of Jesus' resurrection is not enough. All who would be Jesus' disciples must take up their cross and follow him where he goes and where he bids. Another commentator puts it this way. This is the end of Mark's story because it is the beginning of discipleship. Friends, you know the gospel. What are you going to do with it? And so this leaves us with some application, doesn't it? But let's ask some questions here. I got a lot of them for you. You can write them down. First, do you know the gospel and have you believed in it? In other words, is it so integral to your identity and truth that it rolls off your tongue because it is the truth of how you have become God's own? Guys, when somebody comes up to me and says, hey, uh, can you tell me the story of how you fell in love with your wife? I don't go, ooh, let me check my notes and remember my three points. If somebody comes to me and says, Hans, can you tell me what your wedding day was like? Uh, Oh, hold on a second, let me get out my tract. There's nothing wrong with tracts, but... If you say, hey, tell me the story of how your children were born, I don't go, oh, you know, I just, let me, let me gather my words here. Hmm. No, it's there because these are the most important moments of my life. And friends, the gospel is the most important moment of your life. The understanding of the gospel, the fact that Jesus died and rose again and ascended and poured out his spirit into your unregenerate heart that deserved nothing but death and hell. Wow. No offense to my wife or kids or anyone else, but that is the greatest moment of my life, that moment that by his grace he revealed to me that I was a sinner in need of a savior. This should roll off of our tongues. So you're a Jesus follower, right? What's that look like? What's that mean? Guys, if you go, uh, uh, hmm. When I first came down to Salem, I remember going and buying that truck I've got out there that's about ready to give up the ghost. And uh, we were hauling the trailer for our port church and we, we went into the, the place for uh, buying the truck and I was trying to whittle down the price and so I, of course, played the pastor card. I was like, dude, I'm a poor pastor. I'm starting a church. Is there any way you could help me out on some stuff? And he goes, oh, I'm a Christian. I was like, oh, that's awesome, brother. What church do you go to? And he goes, uh, mm. You know, it's that one down kind of that way south in the Salem area. I was like, that's good. We're in Salem. Well, my wife goes a lot more than I do. She's way more involved than I am. Oh, okay, so you're a Christian because your wife goes to church. Cool, right? What did I know right away about the gentleman? He's not involved in his church. I can't say he's not saved, but I, I can tell you he's not involved in his church. If any of you don't know that this is mission fellowship, <laughs> mission fellowship, mission fellowship, we got problems, all right? Do you know the gospel? Does it roll off your tongue? And we know our reliance on the gospel because times like this, like we're experiencing, show us how much or how little we rely upon it or if it's just an aside to the rest of life. Do you know it? 
Have you believed in it? If you haven't, I'd love to talk with you about what it is to truly believe the gospel and walk in it. If you're watching online, I'd love to be able to connect with you. My email is hans at missionsalem.com and talk with you about what it is to follow Jesus. But secondly then, are you ready and able to declare it? Multiple times in this gospel, we've encouraged you to practice what it is to proclaim the gospel. Have you been practicing? Have you gone in front of your mirror in the bathroom and been like, okay, if I got to talk to somebody about the gospel, this is what it looks like. Have you practiced with your spouse? Have you practiced with your children in order to show them what it looks like? If you are a parent, how does the gospel come out in conversation with your children? This is how you know if you're doing family devotions or not, right? I'm convicted when I'm not preaching the gospel to my children because that means I'm usually not doing family devotions. Did one the other night, and again, preach the gospel to my children, right? They get really tired of me saying, get out your pens and your paper, and we're going to give you three points, and no, I don't do that. I just go, well, let's talk about it. What do you guys remember? Let's talk about what the gospel is, that Jesus died, that he resurrected, that he forgave you of your sins. Do you preach it to your kids? Do you preach it in the way you treat them? In your relationship with your spouse, with your roommates, with your friends, with your kids, are you preaching a gospel of confession and repentance, of granting mercy and grace, of reconciliation? We can know it up here all we want, but if we don't play it out in our relationships, we've missed the point. Are you ready and able to declare it? Thirdly, who in your life needs to hear it? You can only be responsible for what you can control and so you can only control talking to the people in your life that are there. It's amazing to me how many Christians, they hear about this kind of a, a sermon and they're like, yeah, I got to preach the gospel. Awesome. I'm selling everything I have and I'm moving to Botswana tomorrow and I'm going to go preach to complete strangers. Guys, it's so easy to preach to strangers. Why? Because you don't care if they ever see you again or if they like you. That's why every one of us gets so excited when we get on a plane. Ooh, I hope there's a non-believer sitting next to me. Hi, do you know Jesus? Yeah, I do. I'm a Christian. Dang it. What a waste of a flight, Right? We get excited for the person next to us is the non-believer, the stranger. But how many of the people in your life right now need to know the gospel? How many people have you known for 20 years that you're nervous to tell the gospel because maybe they'll stop being your friend? They need to know the gospel. Who in your life, your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your relatives, who needs to hear it? While it is indeed true that God has given some in the body a strong gift of evangelism, all of us are commanded to take the gospel to the nations. For some, that may mean short or long-term missionary work, but for others, it means a strong sense of personal evangelism. Are you looking for opportunities every day? I want to challenge you to think through the relationships you have that are closer than mere strangers, and even write down names right now in your notebook of people you know it is time to have the conversation of who Jesus is. In this time of darkness and suffering, the world around us needs to hear from their loving God who gave his only son to save them and give them that hope. And you know who he's entrusted with that message? Not the TV evangelist. He's entrusted it to you. How seriously are you engaging in that commission? And within our discipleship groups, I also want us to ask the question, how are we doing as a church culture in keeping the call to evangelism front and center? I think it's awesome that we as a church have done this great job over the last couple of years of getting our ecclesiology really focused and understanding who we should be as the church and how to love one another. But if we're not careful, then we'll just totally cut off evangelism and it'll be us for and no more. We'll be super stoked that we pull people from other churches. But that's not the heart of God. 
Heart of God is that those who are here and plugged in go and spread the word of God. And if other people come from other churches because it's time, well, praise God if they do that well. But man, we want to go and witness to the non-believers. Preach the gospel to them and draw them in. Are we sharing the gospel and then inviting people to engage in the gospel community by inviting them to church? We can't outsource the gospel. And if you think that's a great question to ask, let's talk about it in our discipleship group and we'll come back with answers of how the leadership can make a better culture for evangelization, then we've missed the point. We have our part in leading it, yes, absolutely, but we collectively are the ones that determine the culture of this church and if evangelism is part of it. And lastly, I want to ask us if we have fallen into the trap that we talked about at the outset of this teaching where we operate in the idea that we were saved at some point in the past and now we're stuck waiting until we see Jesus again. Does that describe your Christian walk? If so, perhaps it's time to ask the question, is my discipleship living and active? Is it active and ongoing? I think in our passive culture, we wait for a program to be provided that sparks our interest. We hope that passionate discipleship will somehow overtake us. The reality is, is that the call to the disciples here in Mark 16 is the same as it is for you and I here today. Notice the angelic messenger says, this is where Jesus can be found. Now you go find him. Half-hearted pursuit does not fit in this account. And we're reminded there of God's previous similar declarations throughout Scripture. This is Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Proverbs 8, 17, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently will find me. Man, we are so good at finding shortcuts in our society, huh? Come on, I say to my wife, I took you out once in the last five years. Isn't that enough romance for you? All of us would be like, whoa, right? Come on, kids, you should really love me as a dad. I hung out with you once a few years ago, right? No, diligently seeking in relationships is what we know to be true. And yet somehow we expect Jesus to be front and center in our lives by never pursuing him. Perhaps the Lord wants to bring some in our body and some listening online, some conviction that in this previous season, you've allowed your passion of discipleship to fizzle and die out. And you're now waiting for someone else to reinvigorate it. Instead of that, what practical steps do you need to engage so that you can say your discipleship is active ongoing? Do you need to re-engage with a personal devotion or set of spiritual disciplines that you once did? Do you need to re-engage with being active in the gathering of the saints? I know that this is a hot and kind of nasty topic right now, and I hope to speak on it a bit today, but because I'm a uh, verbose speaker, I didn't have time for it. It requires more time than I can provide right now. So what I've done is I've started a series of blog posts online on the topic of why we gather. Please go and engage with those posts. Study them for yourselves. Study the scripture that I give you for yourself. And I think that in the midst of COVID, we have drastically and destructively underestimated the importance to gather, and we need to be called back from that. Remember, as I said at the outset, we're balancing physical safety with spiritual care. That's our job as elders. And when we see no cases and no deaths and no harm to our church by God's grace in the physical realm, but we see multiple people walking away from Jesus, multiple marriages struggling, multiple children having emotional breakdowns because of their isolation, multiple problems on a spiritual level, would we be wise elders to go, oh yeah, that's no big deal. We'll keep focusing on the physical. 
We need to balance. And that's why we do these restrictions. But we also need to be looking at the spiritual. And I would encourage all of us to do that. As we conclude in looking at this text that calls us to passionate response to the resurrection of Christ, it can be hard to look at this because I don't know about you, but I feel like a failure so often when it comes to evangelism or passionate devotion to Christ. Does anybody else feel like a failure in that? Especially during this time where so many things pull my eyes and ears and heart away from Christ. And so I want to finish this with this one last piece of encouragement. While there's tons of conviction in this text, there's one last piece of encouragement. Notice that even though these witnesses failed, supposedly, here by verse 8, they did not fail. You know why? Because you and I are sitting here 2,000 years later. And if we look at the rest of the gospel accounts, they were faithful. They got through their sadness, their pain, their amazement, and their fear, and they went back. And notice who he calls them to talk to, the disciples, and notice who else? Peter. Talk about a failure. That's why I like Peter. He and I get along great. We're both failures. He literally had just gotten done denying Jesus. And what did Jesus through this messenger, say to these witnesses, go and tell Peter he's going to be all right. Call him back to following me. Meet me in Galilee. For you and me in this room and online that might feel like our passion has dissolved and we're failures in the faith, recognize that Jesus is gracious and good and steadfast and loving, and it's by his strength we continue to serve. The reality that the other gospel accounts give us is that they might have stumbled at the start, but they were faithful in the end because multitudes of tribes and tongues around the world still gather today. Every Sunday, we gather to declare to a watching world that Jesus died, Jesus was raised, Jesus reigns over his people, and Jesus will come again. Let today be a loving challenge to take that message to anyone and everyone who, uh, that we can, and to keep a watchful eye on whether our discipleship is something of the past or something that is alive and well today. The work of the gospel is not something that ended at the resurrection. Its work was only just beginning. Amen? Amen. Amen.